0: To the Proceedings podcast, I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's director of outreach and marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings editor in chief Bill Hamlet, joining us from the northern reaches of New Hampshire. How's it going up there, Bill?
1: Yeah, we got Naval Institute on Lake Winnipesaukee right now, and uh, yeah, you know, if you got to work remotely, not a bad place to be.
0: Is that the real name, or is that just the name you make up? <laughs> it sounds very stereotypical, New Hampshire lake
1: that is the real name Lake oh, Winnipesaukee and uh right next to the lake where they filmed on Golden Pond so some of our uh, our younger listeners probably Michael doesn't recognize that one but the uh, famous Henry Fonda movie
0: yeah and Jane Fonda
1: Jane Fonda and um Catherine Hepburn. yeah
0: um yeah that was a classic that was uh, I I think that was uh not that we uh love Jane Fonda on the show but um I think that was really like a metaphysical challenge for her to act with her dad like that. You know, I think there was a lot of uh, therapy going on between takes. <laughs> Let's get to our guest today. All
1: right. Joining us, joining us from Prince George's County, Maryland, uh, is Lieutenant Michael Pruitt, who wrote a um, leadership forum in the September issue of Proceedings. It's titled Overconfidence Can Be Hazardous. Lieutenant Pruitt, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, so uh, just go over, if you will, um, real quick, uh, what happened on your ship. What ship you were on when this uh, event happened? Um, you you uh, bit off a little bit more than you can chew, and then you you live to write about it. From from my perspective, it's one of those great stories of um, you know how people can sort of find themselves in a situation that they didn't quite anticipate, and then um, they can learn from it. But also, I think others, their shipmates, and and others can learn from it.
2: Yeah, so um, in the piece, I'm I'm detailing a a specific incident that um, occurred when we were doing preparations for our uh, mid-cycle assessment, which is pretty much the same thing as in a big material inspection ship wide. And one of the things that you have to demonstrate in the damage control realm is you have to demonstrate full operational capability for the AFFF system. Uh, including, like, operation of all the, like, topside flush deck nozzles that spray foam out on all the major, like, helo spots. Um, I was uh, the damage control assistant on board uh, this ship, the USS Shute. Um, I'd been there for maybe five or six months. So, um, you know, still getting my feet underneath me, but um, there long enough to uh, have an expectation that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and um, we were doing this operational test, um it went off without a hitch. Uh we used the entire uh, team to test all these flush deck nozzles. Um and we were headed back into port because we had to drive all the way out into the um outside the Puget Sound and into the uh the northern Pacific where the weather's a little foul. And we're headed back in and there's uh foam coating all the topside spaces. Um and we after the ship uh on the main helo deck we had already uh taken out a hose and washed it down so that you don't have any of that corrosive foam sitting on top um but since we tested the forward part of the ship later uh we still have some foam that's sitting on top of the uh on top of the deck um sun's going down and the weather's getting foul and because of both of these things they secure uh they secure spaces topside, um but in my hubris, I essentially promised to the uh, executive officer that I would uh, get that all straightened out and I would get the uh, the weather decks clean. So a really a really minor operational need, not even an operational need, a nice to have that we would get this, uh, this foam off from sitting on top of the weather decks. And I uh, simply had a hard time finding the personnel to go out and uh, accomplish this. I found exactly one free body and I'm like, well, well, between him and me that's enough to man a hose and i uh i took him out there um in foul weather in the dark at night and we uh tried to spray down the top side and i of course made this decision uh completely forgetting because again i'm uh not quite there long enough to have a good sense of what i'm doing yet <laughs> um completely forgetting that we do not have standard size hoses out there we have the uh the extra girth uh hoses that are designed mainly for uh for like fighting fuel uh fires which cannot be manned by two people they're just uh extremely heavy when they're charged so we're uh struggling up and down on the flight deck in uh pitch black um waves crashing over the side of us uh we get about halfway done before i say we should call it and as we're struggling to even get this hose back onto its camelback um my my lead petty officer for my division comes out and uh, realizes just what has happened because he heard us talking about it on the radio. Um, And just seeing the shock in his eyes made it like all of a sudden, like all the adrenaline just left my body. And I was like, oh my God, I, I almost killed this guy. I almost killed myself. Uh, We were out here in this incredibly, incredibly dangerous circumstance for no reason. We were, we were literally washing something away in the rain. Um, like <laughs> risk someone's life to sweep water off the decks in the rain. That's pretty much where we're uh, where we're looking at, and it made me really like just you know all the blood drained out of me and evaluate why I put myself in that situation. Um, so yeah, I uh, I came to like think about writing this um, for like really like you know two different main reasons. Um, one is I don't know if you uh, you uh, sympathize with this, but there's almost like this weird compulsion for these moments in your life that like evoke a lot of shame that you just feel the need to like confess it and relive it. And uh, and you just can't get it out of your head. Um, th- there's a novelist, Jennifer Egan, who wrote uh, A Visit from the Goon Squad. And in one of the stories in that book, she actually specifically talks about this, uh, this desire to just constantly confess and like relitigate these horrible things you've done. Um and the other was uh, a little bit more direct, a little bit less um literary. Uh <laughs> there's like a kind of a recurring joke that you've probably heard a lot of different permutations of. But um, you know, there's uh there's nothing more scary than a junior officer uh saying, in my experience, uh don't <laughs> have much experience to talk from. So I was thinking, well, if I'm going to if I'm going to write something for proceedings that has some kind of meaningful message, it's probably not something that uh I'm saying something right I did, because <laughs> in my experience, I have so little of it. The one thing we do have a lot of experience in is uh, is failure, uh, is encountering obstacles and failing to meet them. You know, we uh, the surface warfare community kind of goes at obstacles with minimal training. We send people in there uh, who have not yet finished learning their job, and that means that necessarily most of your, like, most meaningful lessons are going to come from failure. Um, so yeah, uh, with those two kind of tacks is how I approached it.
1: Well, one, thanks for uh, sharing the story with us. And two, uh, thanks for your humility. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive, right? I mean, you, you didn't have to share this story with anybody, but as I said at the start, you know, it's, um, uh, when you can share, uh, you know, the, the failures that you've made or the mistakes, particularly mistakes that could have been big mistakes, You know, there's a chance to help others prevent those mistakes. uh, You know, in the future. Um, So you start off uh, talking a bit about the uh, the confidence that you felt. You were in this tour on the Shoop. You were in your second division officer tour as a surface warfare officer. So, uh, so it's not your first division officer tour. You're a lieutenant. You're you're sort of feeling your oats a bit. You you're at you know you say in in uh, in the article, "Fake it until you make it." So talk a little bit about that and, and your mindset there.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, if you'll permit the uh, the generalization about the community, I feel this is something that's pretty common in our community. You know, um, if we can like generally sim- uh, simplify the the junior officer corps into kind of three groups, you've got your your top 5% who are exceptional. They have all their knowledge down and they, they do project confidence because it's rightly earned and they succeed. They go on to be admirals and what have you. Um, you got your Bottom five percent who get separated for cause or for non-attainment—that kind of that kind of, uh, kind of nonsense—and then you have this big chunk, this ninety percent of officers who uh, who might not fully understand their job, uh, like myself, not fully understanding even what kind of hoses I had topside. Uh, and what do you do when you have these gaps in your capability? Well, you fill it up with the one thing you do have, uh, which is confidence. And so you build this core. Of, uh, of folks who are really just proceeding through the virtue of their own ability to project competence, and if you uh, if you're projecting that level of competence, uh, there's there's no way in heck that that's all fully rightly earned, and that's like very much the position I felt myself in. I think I'm you know smarter than your average bear, but um, yeah, definitely a lot of uh, what I was uh, coming to the floor there was uh, was not wholly earned.
0: Well, you you have to project some level of confidence by the time you're commissioned you've had some coming of age moments um where you had to demonstrate the basic amount of competence and aptitude and type a-ness if you will um to get your commission uh, but i think and, and i don't think this is just a, a surface warfare thing either you know i i think in every warfare especially you have this level of you exude confidence, although as you say, it's not earned. But the corollary to that is to exude incompetence, right? Or to exude ineptitude. And, and that's not going to work, you know? So I think what you're talking about is, you know, as you said, you're thrown into the deep end. That's part of the quote-unquote fun of being a J.O. We used to say in the squadron that the most dangerous thing is a first-tour aviator with 500 hours, because like you, that's like having six months under your belt where you're like, he knows enough to be just confident enough to do something stupid uh, and to overreach. And I think that's kind of what you got yourself into here. Um, and you learned the hard way, as you said, fortunately, nobody was killed. But I'm not sure how you would have done other than the way you did it. What what would the recommendation be or how could you have approached this differently either at the 30,000 foot level or at the 500 foot level with this circumstance you got yourself into.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the very simple way, the Occam's razor kind of solution to this specific problem, uh, was we should have not gone topside to fix that problem. We should have let the fact that we were about to get hit by a storm, wash it away. And I'm sure if I had consulted and taken more seriously the advice that i received from my from my senior chief from my uh from my lpo uh they would have communicated exactly that to me in fact uh when i very briefly uh said oh i need to go hose this topside they're like well no you don't because it's about to storm and wash away so if i had done a better job of deferring to the uh to the uh to the expertise in this field and a better job of deferring to the um you know the the historic institutional knowledge I uh, probably would have been better. Um, and then for the more, you know, like 5,000 foot view that you're wanting. You know, I kind of allude to this toward the end of, in the piece, but there's a important little part of this, which is that I, I didn't really get caught. Right. This terrible thing happened. Um, the three people who came out and confronted me about what had gone wrong, uh, did it face to face. And there were people who worked for me. You know, there was, Nothing that uh, really, in any way, would have motivated me to confront this as a failure. Uh, and if anything, uh, this horrible incident that happened, this near-death-like uh, incident that I led and created, uh, would have been perceived topside, right, by my fellow officers in the pilot house, including the XO, as if anything, kind of a, kind of a badass thing. Oh look, DCA's out there; he's uh, manning a hose himself to fix a problem he just said he's going to fix this problem and he did. Um, there is an incentive in our community to project confidence that is not rightly earned. And there is no incentive, and if anything, there's a disincentive to acknowledge when that's the case. Um, if you'll permit a little bit of just cynicism, um, I think it's pretty reasonable that when we look at this, you know, this 90% of the officer corps I alluded to the, that goes through in the middle and is just good enough, um, this community that we we build, uh, I think we see that the people who are successful are a lot of times maybe uh, the reincarnated golden retrievers, you know, enthusiastic, <laughs> smile, bright and shiny, <laughs> uh, not necessarily doing much uh, self analysis. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's an interesting so there,
2: analogy.
1: Yeah. So there wasn't a hot wash with your CO and XO after this?
2: Uh, there was not with the CO and XO. I did. Um, very much tell on myself though uh like this i mean i think it's pretty clear from the way i write about it from the way i talk about this this haunts me this is something i do still have like bad dreams about this is something i i i wept in my stateroom about after it happened um so i i went pretty promptly uh as soon as i could regain my composure to uh explain what i had done to my uh to my chief engineer um there was some, uh, some informal disciplinary counseling, uh, on that front. And I believe it came up later in like, a, a discussion with my CEO, um, about, you know, what are you doing right? What are you doing wrong? How are we going to proceed from this? Um, well, so
0: what did the Chang say?
2: Took on board what I had said, processed it and, uh, moved ahead. Cause I think it was pretty clear that I was already doing, a a lot of, uh, Self punishment, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, I mean, I think... that's
0: why I'm asking because it seems like if a jo comes to me and he's contrite and he's the guy who who sort of fully admits um, his transgression, <clears throat> I'm not sure what I say besides, uh, yeah, don't do that again, right? I, I, I don't know where <laughs> the discipline part comes in at that point.
1: Yeah, maybe give a, a wardroom briefing, right, or a ready room briefing. Hey, let you know, talk about it with uh, your fellow JOS.
0: Or write an article for proceedings. There you right, go. That would be your punishment. <laughs> That's a real punishment. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think the uh, the real the real like kind of tangible punishment uh, that came from that is I, I think we all kind of recognize that in the wardroom, your your main currency is reputation, uh, the way you're viewed, the the bulk kind of aggregate persona that folks build around you and when you confess to having done this horrible like uh error in your decision making uh this error in judgment um like if even if my chang didn't want to like have a concrete punishments at that moment you know that is a that's a big like just mental wound across that that persona you've built and that that has consequences so yeah. i'm sure uh i could attribute that specific failure to like later professional consequences if i if I chose to go down that road. Well, you enough. you also
0: bring up a, a an interesting point when you say that had your seniors, you know, watched you there, they would have said, "Hey, look at DCA. That's badass, right?" That uh, it, absent somebody, and so they'd feel like that until somebody got washed overboard or somebody was hurt, right? Now you have an op rep, you have a uh, mir. Here comes the safety center. Here comes surf pack or surf lamp, whatever, right? And 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 now the CEO is made to walk that dog backwards, as we say. Um, mm-hmm. and now there's no way in hell they're gonna be saying the DCA is badass, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of your point. You know, you got away with it because nobody got hurt. Um and I I've seen this happen where you know somebody's a hero until it goes poorly and then, you know, failure has only one father, as we say. Um so Again, I think, as you've said, you were lucky that that nobody wound up getting hurt because I think the chain of command's reaction would be quite different than the DCA's badass.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, safe, uh, safe shipboard operating uh, should be boring as heck. I think that's a, a pretty accurate little adage we can all agree on. Uh, when things are going right, they're probably boring, and if things are exciting. Maybe we should uh, reevaluate what we're doing, whether or not we're making the right choices.
0: So in the wake of the 2017 mishaps uh, in in the Pacific, McCain and Fitzgerald, uh, the Comprehensive Review alluded to the idea that uh, units weren't resourced appropriately. So how do you feel with respect to that as you speak about you were kind of, let's just use a bunch of torture analogies here and say you, you were over your skis too far right which is sort of the posture that the FNG the 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 nugget the first tour SWO is going to have um did you feel like you had all the training all of the material all of the support that you needed to succeed or is part of this this what the circumstance you got yourself allowing your head work was you know could have used a little work um but how did you feel in terms of how you were supported by the machine. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, that kind
2: of thing. Um, I, I have to be honest with you. Uh, I'm, I'm a cynical fella and I will, uh, I will never miss up the opportunity to attribute something to a big Navy failure to allocate resources, <laughs> but I'm not sure that that was necessarily what we were experiencing here. Um, cause generally speaking, I, you're entirely right. I had every, um, I had every resource I should have had to be able to identify this as a as a less than ideal situation or a dangerous situation. And I just didn't make that decision. Um, I think perhaps the the way I frame that decision calculus to myself, like, oh, you know, this is time sensitive. We have to execute the mission. We have to clean this before it's too late and we have to come in and we have to be clean and presentable all the time. Um, I mean that's something that is very much like informed by just the the culture that we live in, uh, which is culture that we live in in the Navy. I mean to say, uh, which is so very much governed by um, constantly having to meet that that operational need, uh, having to keep ahead of the curve, having to um, you know just keep up with your various inspection schedules. So like that that kind of pointless impulse to nonetheless be like pressing even on issues that shouldn't matter. Uh, I mean, that's very much driven by that under-resourced kind of mentality. Um, but that being said, I don't think the decision itself, uh, uh I had all the correct resources there and I just made the wrong choice. Well, Michael, you also
1: point out, you say a, a few months later, a peer on a different ship would make a series of errors that ultimately killed seven sailors. So, That's alluding to the USS Fitzgerald uh, incident. Um, And Ward just mentioned the uh, comprehensive review after the Fitzgerald and McCain. Um, Did you, uh, as a young SWO, did you go through training without a a BDOC course? Were you part of the SWAS in a box?
2: No, I was, I think, maybe the second class after we had a, a proper BDoc. So I reported to my first ship for, like, two months and then went to a, an in-person B BDoc, um, which was, it felt very much just like a, a recapitulation of all the stuff I did or should have learned in ROTC. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll leave that up to the to the listener to determine whether or not that was valuable. Um, but, yeah, certainly if, if we want to, like, talk about naval ship handling and the degree to which we emphasize it um i think it seems like we're i won't say we're taking a round turn we're taking a series of five degree turns to maybe eventually come to course um but yeah i mean that's definitely a, an area on which we're historically i think de-emphasizing don't know how uh, <laughs> how negative you want me to go on that one <laughs>
1: No, or you know, I just want you to you know, speak as for, to your experience, right? And and mm-hmm. what what you saw, and what also your know, your colleagues, your fellow swos, you know, how were you impacted by the events in 2017? How how did how did you all at your level and your your group, if you will, you know, talk about Fitzgerald and McCain and what caused that, and you know, perhaps um, what what the Navy was doing about it, If you described it as you know, a series of sort of five degree turns to get to the right course now.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I will say the one like true benefit I think came out of that is exactly what you're talking about. Kind of the, the psychological impact on our year group. Um, I think that was a like serious emotional shock. Uh, I've described it to some of my like friends who aren't in the Navy as, like this weird psychological scar that just cuts across our entire community that we all just share. Um, because it did, it it made it very obvious, like for people who maybe aren't self analyzing the kind of small errors that they make in their day to day life that might go like uh, like my incident on the on the forecastle of USS Shoot that might go unreported. Um, it makes them turn and realize the the intense gravity of of what we do every day, uh, which is true. Like every single thing we do on a, on a warship. Uh, it carries immense gravity, whether or not we feel that way, because we're young people. This is what we do every day. It doesn't feel like the thing you do every day can be that important. Um, so, yeah. it So when you say I, it cuts across. People begin to realize how just important what they do on the bridge, how important what they do in their day to day job, um, how important that can be and how there's still this demand of precision and this uh, this need for for expertise. That uh, we might not always be willing to show or provide when it's uh, you know two a.m. on the midwatch or whatever.
0: So when you talk about the emotions that cut across your year group in the wake of those mishaps, is that guilt? Is it concern for you know professional deficits? Uh, What 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 do you what did you recognize in that? Was there an aha moment among the wardroom JGs and lieutenants that? Hey, this could happen here if we don't watch it. Was there anything like that?
2: Uh, I would one hundred percent. That is exactly uh, what I mean to say. Um, a, on my ship alone, uh, I had a, a colleague who had uh, trained with the with the officer of the deck who was qualified. Alongside her, I had a colleague who had uh, bit who had just come from Fitzgerald, who had um, who had gotten his OOD letter under the captain. Um, these people who it is incredibly like abundantly clear to them that could have been me. And then once you realize that you could so easily be slotted into that same position, you realize how the decisions that you make every day to that day uh, continue to follow along the same lines. Um, like maybe I didn't make this specific series of mistakes off the coast of Japan, but I have made similar series of mistakes that just happen to be luckier, or uh, I've made series, uh, similar errors or I've had similar times where I've been, in some way, mildly negligent on my job in a way that I thought was okay. Um, yeah, so there's like a level of guilt. There's a level of like just pain, you know, just loss, loss of coworkers, uh, a, a lot of different kinds of scars. So
0: when you talk about taking a round turn, um, that's a very common Navy expression. Um, you know, the, the, uh, so what specifically would that mean to you at that time? Is that. More professional study is that demand more sleep, you know, modify the watch bill. So you you have more opportunities to, to rest, you know, uh, circadian rhythms and and that sort of thing, um, go cold iron and and have a, a safety stand down. What, what, what does that mean specifically take a round turn in the case of, of you being the DCA and a member of the watch team on on the on the ship
2: so i mean we know what the solution that we were provided was a community wide safety stand down um the addition of little green notebooks that were required to make uh, notes about all our professional achievements and and the addition of SWO jackets um that was the navy solution for how to improve the professionalization of the uh of the ship driving force and i'm not sure uh how much I would say that is a decisive round turn. I, I mean, we're talking simultaneously about two different kinds of issues. Really, we're talking about uh, levels of professional expertise, but then I think more the direction we began this conversation was um, the community ethos. Uh, this emphasis on on confidence rather than expertise. This emphasis on uh, on projecting well uh, and being viewed well. Not even projecting well, just being viewed well. Um, overperforming well. Um, and that's, those are two complicated things, both of which deserve like truly deeply structural, uh, modifications, um, that really demand that we re-envision like what the officer corps is and how it serves. Uh, so yes, uh, greater professional, uh, training, uh, perhaps, you know, I think this is a, a pretty recurring, uh, piece of, um, scuttlebutt conversation amongst members of the wardroom, but possibly a separation of the different, uh, roles and responsibilities in the designator, uh, perhaps make watchstanders and principal assistants separate, uh, separate designators. That's something I, uh, I come back to a lot myself. I think watchstanders should be watchstanders and division officers should be division officers. Never the twain shall meet. Uh, that's a personal thing. Um, and then just truly deeply structural, um, changes that would allow us to uh, to better ensure that people understand the gravity of their responsibility. Uh, I would question whether or not someone who's 21 years old, straight from the Naval Academy, um, where they've had a, a very different kind of life, you know, uh, fully understands the, the gravity and the responsibility of taking care of the lives of a bunch of sailors. And I'm not sure that I know a specific solution that uh, communicates that to our community.
0: Uh, Okay. So now we've gone 80,000 foot, you know, we're in an (laughs) SR 71 here. Right. Um, So, because you bring up an important thing and this conversation, I'm sure we all had at his mids, uh, you know, are are we focused on the right things? Um, You know, what do we learn? Is this, is it academic focus? Is it, you know, get your civil engineering degree, get your Naval architecture degree you know, you got to be smart because it's a technical Navy because Hyman Rickover said so, or is it a trade school? Because you have four years to be ready for that circumstance you're talking about. And and I, like you, had some great chiefs that g- grabbed me by the lapels of my flight suit and said, you know you're not being a good leader here, you know, um, or that's your job, sir, and, you know, pummeled me. And, and by the time I was in 04, I was probably ready to – earn my paycheck. So that's probably a different discussion. But I think more specifically around the comprehensive review, as we talk about the five degree turns, you know, which is different than taking a round turn, but you said we're doing a series of five degree turns. So what specifically have you seen in terms of how the surface warfare community has modified, adjusted in the wake of the McCain and Fitzgerald mishaps and the comprehensive review? What are you seeing?
2: Um, yeah, so that would be just a an increased per, uh, focus on ship handling. Uh, I think it's minor; it's less than we need, but there is an increased focus on ship handling, specifically in response to the McCain and the Fitzgerald. We have definitely seen an increase in the uh, the opportunities that we have to access ship uh, ship handling simulators. Um, we've seen an increased focus on our maritime expertise uh, through this focus on watch standing and, and journaling, and you know managing uh, your own like personal qualifications and experience I still would 100% say that's not adequate I mean I've been through several simulators several uh hours dozens of hours of simulators doing uh doing simulated moorings and I don't think I could tell you the first thing about how to moor a ship right now it's been too long since I've had a runner. <laughs> um, I think the last time I had the con of a ship um, other than being cycled on during an underway replenishment, was probably when I was an ensign in maybe my third or fourth month of, uh, of naval service. I'm uh, coming up here on my eighth year, and that was the last time I held the rudder of a ship. So uh, I'll let you make heads or tails of what that indicates about our
0: Navy. Well, I mean, it indicates that that's a, a, a skill with a shelf life. And I think, and we had no less than Admiral Mullen admit in the pages of proceedings in an article co written with Admiral Natter, but also he was a guest on our podcast. That he admitted when he was CNO, he kind of took his eye off the ball in terms of career progression with a focus on advanced education and jointness and not on what you're talking about. Because I think, as I've observed uh, the service warfare community, there's always this sort of, well, what we do kind of anybody could do kind of thing, you know, and and it's not like aviators who have to do carrier landings and, and, you know, operate under the force of Gs and that sort of thing. I think that's wrong. And I think that was the aha moment to what you just said. Even things like moorings and, you know, anchor detail and all of those things, those are skills that have a shelf life. And when you're away from it um, at the war college or in some joint billet, um, those skills are atrophying. And that matters. Mm-hmm. That's, that's probably the main takeaway. Um, the, from- uh,
2: the case study I like to give of folks is if I, if I decided to stay in, right. If I was uh, someone who wanted to make a career out of this and uh, take command of a warship, um, my first tour, I already explained the last time I held the con uh, because I went on to JOD and then OD fairly early was maybe four months in um, my second tour. I was a qualified EO working in uh, the engineering department. I stood EO my entire second tour. Um, I also could have, uh, if I was a little bit more competitive of a sailor, I could have uh, had that be a staff duty in which I was standing like assistant battle watch captain or something. Um, then suppose I continue on department head school. What am I doing there? I'm standing watches TAO because that's what I'm qualified and trained to do. It's the next skill set that I have to develop and show that I can be a captain one day. And then at that point, I would hope I'm... Uh, a qualified and impressive enough candidate that my second department head tour is maybe as a, as the N four for the Desron, uh, in which case I'm standing battle watch captain. Uh, then that means the next time that I'm going to be holding the con of a ship is as a commanding officer, and the last time I held the con of a ship was as an ensign four months in. The next time is as a commanding officer of a warship. Um, that's a fundamental error in design. Yeah, that's crazy. The career progression. There's no doubt about it. Yeah
1: yeah, you would never as an aviator, right? you're 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 never going to let go of the stick uh, for for fifteen years. I mean, you, you're you've got to be flying, you've got to be proving your aviating skills, you know your entire career, right? And I think submariners are the same way. So taking those uh, you know shipboard, particularly bridge watch standing uh, responsibilities, you know, I mean, this, this civil merchant mariners would never do that either. Right. I mean, that's their job is to stand bridge watches to drive the ship. So that's, uh, some interesting points. Um, I just one more question, cause we're kind of running out of time here, but, uh, Ward, you, you brought up the topic of, uh, circadian watch bills or circadian rhythms and sleep cycles, and those things. A lot of that's been written about in the pages of proceedings. Uh, Michael, I was just curious if. Uh, if you saw any of those changes on your ship or maybe you left too early or if you've heard from your uh you know fellow junior swos about changes has the Navy made changes in terms of going to circadian watch bills and to you know putting a greater emphasis on sleep and recovery and rest
2: um so I will say on my on my actual first tour when I was standing bridge watch we did implement a circadian rhythm uh, watch rotation for uh, the entirety of deployment Uh Definitely effective. Uh, I think perhaps more effective for your uh, for your enlisted sailors than it is for your officers, who are continued to expect uh, to attend meetings throughout the day that who where your presence is required. So it requires, a, I think, a more holistic kind of approach to what a shipboard schedule looks like than just changing the the watch rotations, which is the error that happens a lot in implementation that I see. Um, Second ship, we did not implement Circadian. I don't believe, uh, you know, I invite people who are on that ship to correct me. Um, But uh, that was in part because the Bridgewatch team just stayed in three sections for almost the entirety. They didn't want to disperse talent uh, across a fourth or a fifth uh, section um, with mixed results, perhaps. Um, And it's really challenging to implement Circadian on three sections. So they didn't. Uh, That definitely, I would say, impacted a lot of the... uh, at least in the, in the anecdotal evidence I got from speaking with my peers and colleagues that it uh, significantly uh, deterred mental health on board. It was, uh, it was not always the best. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, we've got to wrap up. Um, our
1: guest today is Lieutenant Michael Pruitt, a Surface Warfare Officer, U.S. Navy. His article is uh, the Leadership Forum in the September issue of proceedings. is titled Overconfidence Can Be Hazardous. Michael, it was great talking to you today. Thanks for writing, and thanks for being on the show.
0: It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.